Good evening, everyone. My name is Rebecca Jelly, and I will be your MC for this evening. Tonight's talk will be from doctoral candidate Ali Lowry on wine science, with a talk titled From the Vineyard to the Glass, What Really Goes Into New Zealand Wine. So without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Ali. Good evening. My name is Ali Lowry from the University of Auckland, and I am a PhD candidate from the School of Chemical Sciences. I am very excited to be here and to be part of Raising the Bar, and I thank you for tuning in this evening. A quick little introduction about me. Um, I'm from Hawke's Bay, which is the second largest wine region in New Zealand behind Marlborough. I worked in hospitality throughout high school as a uni and university as a sommelier. Appreciation for wine was very much part of my upbringing and that foundation is what made me fall in love with this industry and gives me a sense of place. I started off with a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry and Geography but felt really drawn back to the wine industry so I ended up doing a postgraduate diploma in wine science on Waiheke Island. Um, there is this fantastic course through the University of Auckland where you get the privilege to live on this beautiful homestead on site at Goldie Estate, and it's a fully immersive experience. Um, I'm saying that on my own accord. Uh, I liked it so much that I stuck around for a master's and a PhD in wine science. So my PhD is, is in soil chemistry. So my research is mainly based on what happens in the vineyard and looking if there are chemical fingerprints I can find from soil to wine. So with these fingerprints, you quickly delve into climate change and synthetic chemicals that are sprayed onto the vineyard, where I have a real deep interest in environmental sustainability. So to be on brand for the talk tonight, I recommend relaxing with a glass of wine while I take you on a short journey um, from soil to wine with a focus on climate change. We will start with the soil in the vineyard, linking through to the current state of climate change, and then we'll look at how this is affecting wine and the wine industry for the future. And then we'll bring it all back to New Zealand and what we're doing now and how you can help as an individual. Firstly, we start with uh, start our journey with the vineyard soil. So this is a foundation that supplies nutrients to the grapevine, which can influence how good a wine is. There is a very simple concept that a healthy soil means a healthy grapevine, right? In New Zealand, we have quite a youthful environment going on. So that means we have a large variety of soil types that is still in the process of weathering by climate and vegetation. The wine regions in particular are made up of young volcanic soils, types like silt, sand, gravel, and stony alluvial soils, which are deposited by flowing water across the coastal floodplains. A really good example of this is our biggest winemaking region, which is Marlborough at the top of the South Island, where it's such like an ideal place to grow wine. Um, a sub-region there is called the Wairau Valley, where the river, it's a Wairau River, flows through and the plains consist of older riverbed soils. And this is where some of the hallmark Sauvignon Blanc that we all know is grown. So we have this really good, healthy starting point, right? So we can kind of ask the questions of how can this change over time? 
Soil takes a really long time to change its chemistry. So it's quite difficult to measure this. But we can look at kind of human interventions like what's sprayed on the vineyard, tractors compacting the soil, getting rid of ground cover so there is bare land. This will all incur um, a lot of runoff and erosion and this will all change the soil. It's really important that we take more care of our soils so we don't get past the point where these changes over time are irreversible. This is where research like mine comes in, where the chemical state of the soil is measured as like a snapshot in time. So you can measure other chemical inputs applied onto the vineyard like climate and synthetic sprays. If a vineyard ends up with a chemically unbalanced soil, um, this is unhealthy for the grapevine. So we can kind of think like, what would the wine be like if this happened? The grapes in particular, they wouldn't have these really good concentrations of nice fruity flavors, and there probably will be some disease pressure issues. So this makes winemaking more difficult. So more additions would have to be made, like adding things like acid, tannin, sugar, fining agents to compensate for the average grapes that come from the vineyard. Um, this isn't what we want. We want it, as much fruit expression as possible with little intervention. There is this interesting documentary on Netflix called Kiss the Ground, and it talks about how soil can be used to help climate change. Healthy soil that grows crops like grapes can be used more effectively as part of the carbon cycle, where CO2 from the atmosphere can be absorbed by these soils. Um, in soil chemistry, we measure these kind of soil health indices by means of organic matter and total carbon content in the soil, and measuring if the pH of the soil is within acceptable ranges. I personally look at the chemical trace elements and the availability in the soil to be able to supply nutrients to the grapevine. So generally, in terms um, of soil chemistry, crops that don't have all these herbicides sprayed onto them and have some really good ground cover show increased in capacity of storing carbon from the atmosphere. So vineyards could act, and vineyards and other crops um, could act as carbon sinks to counterbalance these greenhouse gas emissions that we have a big problem with right now and will in the future. Um, this is good. We want to increase the carbon sink capacity of soils and crops. So this poses a really real and doable function to help fight climate change. So we have this definition of climate change, right? And that is a long-term change in the average weather patterns that have come to define Earth's local, regional, and global climates. Um, the most recent COP summit that happened last year that you've probably heard about focused on a two degrees increase in how this is economically viable. A huge talking point is personal responsibility, how you should change your lifestyle to prevent rapid climate change. So I think to have real doable solutions, we first need to understand the problem. So basically everything we do to make our lives easier, safer, and more comfortable is making things worse for the biosphere. I'll talk about this from a food production angle as wine is included under this umbrella. 
One major issue with food is the concept of emit or die. We will soon need to feed 10 billion people, and we don't know how to do that yet, without emitting greenhouse gases, as modern food requires a lot of fertilizers, and it's impossible right now to have zero emissions food. For example, rice alone emits so much methane each year, it basically equals all emissions from worldwide aviation. Shifting responsibility from the largest carbon emitters to the average person is much easier to do than solving problems. The concept of the individual carbon footprint actually came from a BP ad in 2005. That's something new that I learned. So also a quick fact, if you eliminated 100% of your emissions for the rest of your life, you would save one second's worth of emissions from the global energy sector. And we have just witnessed a global experiment, right? And staying at home, not using transport and consuming less due to COVID. All it did was reduce CO2 emissions by 7% worldwide for the year of 2020. So what has this got to do with the wine industry, right? So we're going to bring it back to the wine industry specifically and climate change. As we move from the soil in the vineyard to the wine in the glass with the climate change lens, it's important to note that wine is not essential for human survival, but I think it's an important product of human ingenuity. I do acknowledge there are a lot more crucial industries where the effects of climate change will be a lot more detrimental to human existence than alcohol production. Um, but it is still a massive industry where a lot of people's livelihoods will be affected if it no longer existed. Worldwide, premium wine production occurs with really narrow climate ranges. So region by region, climate change is really going to shift wine production, especially in terms of grape selection. So that means what we can grow and where we can grow it. So what's the problem here, right? Um, we're going to lose the ability to grow grapes in places we've grown grapes for a really long time. And the hotter climate is changing the wine we know and love. So what will wines look like that are grown in warmer than normal temperatures, i.e. what will climate change taste like? So firstly, the grapes are going to be overripe. So this makes wines that are less acidic. So think like a Crips Sauvignon Blanc will no longer be as fresh. So wines will have more body and they'll be sweeter. This is because the grapes on the vine will be exposed to hotter climates, so sugar will accumulate within the grape. When you have grapes of a higher sugar, the yeast during fermentation will churn out more ethanol production, so you usually get higher alcohol in the wine. Um, wines are commonly right now around the 12.5% mark, but we're going to see a lot more wines in the 14% plus range and cooked flavours as well. That makes some funny, I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, some examples, so red wine, right? We're going to have more flavours of cooked fruits, so kind of like stewed plums, baking spices, prunes, and savoury notes. So there'll be a lot less of these bright, fresh red cherries and raspberries that I personally really like in a youthful New Zealand Pinot Noir. So the chemical makeup aroma and palate balance is going to change in the wine. Um, what else is going to happen? 
Under the COP2 degrees warming scenario I previously mentioned, it is predicted that Spain is forecast to lose about 65% of its wine growing area. By 2100, the United States could lose up to 81% of its wine growing area. And then other countries like Italy, Greece, and notably France may be become completely inhospitable to grape production by 2050. We don't have to look far to see issues. It seems like a lifetime ago, but Australia with those 2020 bushfires and um, smoke taint is still an issue today in the wine. I'm, wait, I'm personally waiting for a good vintage to invest in some Barossa red wines so I can age as um, those predicted, those Australian regions will have about 25 years left until they're gone. In New Zealand, um, it's unfortunately bad news for Pinot lovers as this is by far the most at-risk variety to disappear. So what changes are we doing now about this? Um, for example, in Bordeaux in France, you can't grow whatever you like. There are very specific rules around what you can plant and what varieties you can plant. But in 2021, Bordeaux approved six more varieties that are more adaptive and temperature resistant, so there'll be less reliance on, on grapes like Merlot in the future. This means that there is a change to different grape varieties that we've not grown there previously to account for climate change in the long term, but it's really important to note here that replanting costs a lot of money. So what will all the wine regions be switching to, especially in terms of red wine, be more later ripening varieties. So for example, a Grenache or a Monastrel, opposed to a Pinot Noir. I want to note that it's not all bad. I think that a new opportunity awaits us. I think it's a balance of gain and loss. It's too hot to grow a variety, but it opens up an opportunity to grow another that previously wouldn't have been suitable. For example, the UK now makes some really decent sparkling wine. Um, whoever thought that would have been possible. So New Zealand, I think, will expand in its climatically suitable area for these later ripening varieties by 15 to 60%. So what does this mean? This means, as I said, more Cabernet Sauvignon, the Monastrel, the Grenache, and less Pinot Noir. So if we bring it back home, we can talk about the New Zealand wine industry specifically, and I, I call them the good guys. I think they're doing a really good job. Um, globally, there are a lot of industries and a lot of powerful people that either don't care in climate change or have an invested interest in the economy staying the way it currently is. And I'm proud to say that I think the New Zealand wine industry specifically is doing a really good job in tackling and addressing climate change. Wine does have lower greenhouse gas emissions than dairy, sheep, and beef farming. However, fertilizers and fuel in the vineyard and electricity in the winery to packing materials and freight to ship it all over the world, it all carries a carbon cost. 46% of vineyards in New Zealand reduce their use of herbicides and 58% of wineries, just New Zealand as well, are implementing specific initiatives to minimize their carbon footprint. And the New Zealand wine industry has set a really good goal of being carbon neutral by 2050. And it's also a little side note on top of that too, 
more than 10% of all New Zealand wineries hold organic certification. So we should care, I think, about this industry as Kiwis, as international demand for New Zealand wine has surged over the past decade, with the total export value now reaching a record-breaking $2 billion for the 12 months to October 2020. So they are doing a really good job at reducing emissions and they have plans for the future, which is really exciting. So what can we do as an individual to help this industry? To kind of end tonight, I have a few hard and fast tips on how you can buy wine as a consumer that helps the New Zealand industry and climate change. Buy local. The next time you're celebrating something, you think, oh, we should buy some champagne, should buy some Moet. Um, why not try some local sparkling? There's this new initiative called Method Marlborough, and there's some amazing champagne-like wine that's being made out of this region. The second tip I have is logo lookout. On if when you're buying a wine, if you turn the wine label around and you look at the back of the wine label, um, look for these logos. The Sustainable Wine Growers New Zealand, but there's also things like the Carbon Zero label or a BioGrow label. I found that researching soil and climate change can sometimes feel a bit daunting, and some points that I've made tonight might feel a bit doom and gloom, right? But I think even after everything I've learned about science on this topic, I am generally optimistic about the future and where science and technology can take us in mitigating these problems. Environmental sustainability and future-proofing one of our biggest export industries is something everyone I think in New Zealand should care about, uh, whether you are a wine consumer or not. So I hope you've taken something away tonight about what is going on in the industry, in the wine industry and with climate change. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Ali, for your fascinating talk. And I'm sure there will be many questions. I see a few have come through now. In the meantime, while you're getting those questions together, you mentioned that you measure chemical fingerprints from this journey of soil to wine. How exactly do you do that? Um, and what are you measuring? Yeah, sure. So for my PhD research, the main objective was to measure the chemistry from soil to wine and see if there are any connections between them, right? Um, I measured the chemical elements specifically, so how much of things like copper and magnesium and things like that are in the soil samples. Um, then I measure the same chemical elements for grapevine parts, so bark and leaves, and then I move on to the fruit parts, so the juice and the subsequent wine that comes out of that. Um, it's a really complex process with a lot of steps going on that cannot be measured. Uh, but the main goal is to try and find some elements in the wine that have similar trends or may not um, as to what is found in the soil and in the grapevine. So I think that's the main point here. You said the New Zealand wine industry is aiming to be carbon neutral by 2050. What does this exactly mean and how are they going to go about this? Yeah, sure. It's a good question. It's a very much like a buzzword, I think, at the moment with a lot of industries. And um, carbon neutral, basically, what that means, for example, is that any CO2 emissions that are released into the atmosphere from a company's activities, 
um, they have to balance that by an equivalent amount that is being removed. Um, so in the wine industry in New Zealand specifically, carbon zero accreditation um, requires companies first to measure um, and reduce their total carbon emissions. This is independent, independently audited, which is really important. And any remaining emissions are offset, and that's commonly by purchasing carbon credits. But at the individual winery level, there's also evidence of them doing some really good things like using solar power and native bushland planting. And there's a whole range of things that are going on. That's the main way that they're doing that. Awesome. Thanks for that. Okay, let's move through to some of these questions that are coming up. We have a couple from Paul. First up, should we be aiming to eliminate all synthetic chemical inputs into the vineyard, i.e. organics, or at least starting to head in that direction? What are your thoughts on that, Ali? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's really topical. I think the important part of that, when he mentioned at least starting to head in that direction, I think that's the really crucial part. I think that to completely wipe out everything, the reason that you spray all these chemicals onto the vineyard is to try and compact disease and the sort of pressure that we're having from increasing humidity and temperatures and stuff like that. So it's going to be a real balance, but reducing is really important. I don't think that we'll get to a point where it's a hundred percent nothing, but it's all about like reduce thinking a bit, thinking a bit more about what you're doing and measuring it. That's the best thing that you can do right now, I think. Claude Borgrenon looked at acidity or lack of in Burgundy several decades ago and concluded that soil chemistry was in part to blame. Um, is any of this work going to help us deal with climate warming? Does his work still stack up? Um, I don't personally know about this work specifically, but I'll be very keen to research it a little bit later on. Um, but in terms of acidity, there is definitely a link between acid in the juice from the grape and that goes through to the wine into the soil so that's kind of a lot of a conversation around soil type and where you're growing so there's a lot of local geography and climate um, things that are going into all the system as I kind of noted there's a lot of things going on so it's hard to say one thing over here is going to impact one part over here so it's not just going to be the acid in the soil it's going to be a lot more other things that are happening but I think that making these connections is really important conversations that we need to be having to kind of help maintain good acidity levels in the wine which is going to be really important going into the future when it gets hotter and hotter I think. So where do you think the most exciting area of research for individuals such as yourself going forward will be? It seems the industry is changing rapidly. What do you think will be the next big topic or issue? Yeah, that's another like, really great question. I really like um, future thinking. That's really cool. I think that if we have a whole bunch of more R&D and I think we have a lot more opportunity to expand in the technological space I think we kind of need to link a few things together so the we can measure all these chemical inputs and stuff but I think we need to have more doable solutions in the 21st century and I feel like connecting the science that we know and I really love all this reducing synthetics 
um, chemicals and climate change and then how we can do that from a technological angle. I think that's the way to go. It's really exciting. Um, one more up here. So regarding the point that wine will become less acidic due to climate change, very valid point here. Can you not just pick earlier to resolve this? What do you think on that? Yeah, absolutely. That is a, you think that like, okay, they're going to get overripe and they're going to get to these, it's going to be too hot. Why can't we just pick earlier? Fair point. So I think the decision to harvest, I personally think is the most important decision that you kind of make during the entire year. Um, what trends are happening with climate change is that wineries have already been forced to pick earlier, right? Um, this is usually due to more severe weather events. So there's high humidity and this spring disease pressure, so you really need to get grapes into the winery. Um, I remember about five years ago in Hawke's Bay when I was doing a vintage, we were generally harvesting in March, April, late April, um, I saw some wineries picking in late January this year. So that's a massive shift, right? Um, there's a consequence to that. Um, so if it's a warmer in the growing season and the wineries pick earlier, there isn't the right length of time or environments for these aroma compounds to, the, to develop. So the, it's really important to note here that the aromas and flavours that we want in the wine won't be there like we should if we just keep picking earlier and earlier. We've got a few of our audience members um, discussing our local alternative to champagne. Do we think drinking this wine has a, a lower carbon footprint than champagne? Yeah, so you think it will have a lower carbon footprint because just straight it hasn't travelled as far. So the packaging and freight and all those sorts of things will be a lot lower. So it hasn't had all that carbon cost credits that you have to offset for, for how far it's come France, all the way over here, very well traveled. I think that, and it's made on such a large scale, and I think that these smaller champagne-like places in Marlborough definitely would have a smaller carbon footprint. What is the difference between organic and natural wine? And is it just a sales pitch or are they distinct? Yeah, so there is kind of a difference. Um, to be labelled as organic, you have to be, especially in this country, you have to be certified. You're not allowed to just chuck organic on the label as much as you like. And that certification is quite rigorous. And it's through BioGrow, B-I-O-G-R-O. So you can kind of have a look at what, online of what it takes to be an organic wine. Um, natural wine usually means it's been very fashionable the last couple of years. If you go up to any wine shop on K Road or a bar, I find that every single wine is a natural wine. Um, it usually means that there's been no fining agents. So you'll find that if you have a natural wine, it's usually cloudy because it hasn't gone through the same sort of filtering and fining that a traditional wine would. So it's important to know that organic wine can still be filtered and fined, and natural usually does not. So if you're fine with having um, a cloudy sort of precipitate in your wine, then go for it. <laughs> Thanks, Ali. We've got um, sort of two questions here that we could probably put together. Um, the first is, is there any work on genetic modification to help with the issues being faced? And the second question here is, do you think viticultural interventions could make our wine become more viable in New Zealand? So I guess these are two different suggestions. Um, 
what is what is your thoughts and yeah on these areas yeah sure so this is going to be high level this is going to be a chemist answering a biology question um so i don't know the ins and outs to be honest about genetic modification but from a biological standpoint and i know it's quite a controversial topic as well so i think that there are definitely so many things that i think we could be looking into in the biological space so we can change things like rootstock for example so we can have the way that you grow a grape you can have the base kind of rootstock variety to be more um protected against climate change we can kind of we need to do more research and figuring out what that is and then we can have a different variety um, on grown on top of that rootstock i feel like there's so much more room for that to be developed and in terms of to do different viticultural interventions to make Pinot Noir and Sauvignon Blanc, um, there's this really interesting, I only learned this recently, there is the forest, which is a family, and they make the doctor's Pinot Noir, and it's lower alcohol. And the way that they're doing that is they're actually changing the grapevine canopy. So they're making it shorter and they're making it smaller. And that seems to be a more natural way to make a lower alcohol Pinot Noir that's going to be around for the future because it still retains those really good flavours. So I think that research is being done and there is a long way to go with it. So I know you touched on this at the beginning briefly, but where does your true passion for wine stem from? Just some background, Ali. Yeah, a little bit of a background. I think growing up in Hawke's Bay really made, um, set the scene. So it's a very like nice wine industry and I come from a family of wine enthusiasts. I have an uncle who's a winemaker and my dad was very much of the connoisseur. So I learned from a very young age of how to approach wine, really good food pairings and things like that. So I have really enjoyed getting to learn that space from a young age and then that naturally developed into hospitality. I, did that for a long time I was just so passionate about it and then when I went to uni I kind of felt like that I, there were two split worlds when I would go home and I'd be working in restaurants and talking about wine and then I'd be up here doing chemistry so I got approached to do the Waiheke course and it felt like everything collided so I definitely feel like I'm where I'm meant to be which is cool. Besides acidity what organic stuff in the soil will affect flavour and how? should organic wine taste better? Yeah, so I think it's really important to kind of note that I'm not really doing a, I'm not here sitting here telling you that organic wine is superior and you shouldn't drink conventional wine. No, I, I think that conventional wine is fantastic and so is organic wine. I don't think one is better than the other. It's more of a personal preference. And when you grow organic grapes, there's still a bunch of sprays and copper and that kind of stuff that you can still apply in the vineyard. So there isn't a whole, especially in this country, where we don't actually spray that much compared to um, global standards. So there isn't actually too much of a gap, I don't think, between organic and conventional. It's still really cool that we have this whole biogrow system. I think it's amazing and I think it's got a long way um, to go as well. But I think that... The split isn't that bad. I have some organic wines that I really like, and I think that you can kind of taste the, the tuar. There's like a romantic notion, then it's supposed to be more expressive 
of the vineyard that it comes from. And I think that's kind of the root of where organic is sitting itself. The fact we don't spray as much here compared to international standards. Why is that? What is the difference? We are new world compared to old world regions. So I think that we just aren't as intense and we don't have the same sort of pest and diseases that other countries have. Um, for example, in the US, they have a lot more like different sort of um, pests, disease and other things going on, different bugs that we have really good biosecurity in this country. So we're very fortunate to not have those kind of problems yet. Fingers crossed, touch wood, wooden table here. Um, so I think that is kind of why that we don't spray as much and we haven't, the soils haven't undergone these types of sprays for nowhere near as long as they have say in France or South America or Spain, for example. So our soils are in a lot healthier position, I think, just because of um, when newer. Question here from the Q&A box. Can you make a wine without sulfites? So I think that sulfites are really important in wine um, to balance for spoilage reasons and the way we, we really look at our SO2 levels, that's really important um, to make sure that we have, by the time that we've made the wine and we bottled it and you're sitting at your table enjoying it with friends and you're drinking it, that it's still just as good as when we made it. That's basically what sulfides are there for, to make sure there's no issues along the way. So I think that, yes, there's always a part to play. I think that the most important thing with sulfides is accurate measurement. And I think we're getting better at, better at accurately measuring the levels and not going overboard, right? So you don't need to have a whole bunch of sulfides in the wine and you don't have to put as much on your vineyard as well. But I still think it has a part to play. It's there for a reason. Oh, question here. Can you compare the effects on soil of copper compounds with fertilizers and other non-organic sprays? Mm -hmm. So I have been looking at this quite intensely over the last couple of years of copper sprays versus non-copper sprays and other sulfur is a good um, other spray that they use, particularly in organic viticulture. So that when you do organic gum growing, there's only a really short list that you can kind of pick from in terms of the sprays and copper is one of them. So they do use that at their disposal to reduce um, powdery and downy mildew. That's mainly what it's for, which is really important. It's a big problem we have in this country. So the separation between organic and non-organic isn't there as much as you think. They're both the conventional and organic spray copper. The amounts will might vary, but there's definitely copper in both. Um, and I think that it's still, I still want to make an important note that conventional wine is not the bad guy and organic's the good guy. There are, I think New Zealand wine is all the good guy, which is good. <laughs> Does organic wine have sulfites? Yeah, I think so, because um, sulfur is one of the as I said, in the short list of sprays that you're allowed to spray on organic vineyard, sulfur is also one of them. So there will be sulfur sprayed on the organic solid sulfur put onto the vineyard. So it will be there in the vineyard, most likely. Not every single one will use it, but it's most likely. Um, so in terms of the wine, we still will use SO2, which is like sulfur levels. We'll still be measuring it regardless if you're organic or not, because it's about 
making sure the wine doesn't go off. <laughs> that's the main thing that that's the main reason why salt is there. We we need it to check the spoil um, levels and we need to make sure that when it's in the bottle, it's it's good. <laughs> so whether you're organic or you're conventional or you're natural or anything, it's measuring your SO2 levels will always be an important part of winemaking. So in the vineyard itself, um, what is the purpose of it? Mm -hmm. So it's the same that we kind of talk about, like the copper and the thing. It's mainly to reduce and to control pest and disease. So in our country, you know, we have a lot of rain. We have a lot of humidity. So the reason that we put these type of things on the vineyard, such as copper, such as sulfur, like that, is to prevent and try to minimise these diseases that grow and grow and grow out of humidity as much as possible. So it's these like downy, powdery mildew, botrytis, all these things that we're trying to, it's a big struggle, like a big battle that I don't think um, will be resolved too quickly, but I think that um, generally viticulturalists and winemakers are very well informed in this country of how to deal with it. And I think they do a really good job of doing it as much as possible. Cool. And now we'll probably finish up the Q&A here with one really important question. <laughs> We've got a question here. I'm just curious, what can possibly give me headaches, especially after red wines? Any ideas? Now, for me, it's probably simply having too much of wine. <laughs> but um, how would you answer this one, Ali? Yeah, sure. So there is some really interesting discussions that I've seen around the media around sulfites and wine and your headaches, right? So especially after red wine, there generally are higher levels of sulfites than white wine. So that could kind of be a link there. There are people that um, sulfur sensitivities does exist and there are some kind of things that you can do about that. But I also find personally for me, when if I ever have like that, it's more related to sugar. So I think that the, if there's any sugar in the wine kind of thing, that's kind of why I might kind of feel like that. But I think in terms of, I find that the nicer the wine is, the less likely it is to have higher SO2, the less likely it is to give you a headache. So I recommend um, not necessarily getting the most expensive bottle that you can ever see, but I think that maybe doing a little bit more research around um, definitely buy more local, get more like Marlborough or Central Otago or Martinborough kind of red wines, and then just seeing how you go. So, yeah, I just would try and error a few things. That sounds like very good advice. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Ali, and thank you, everyone, for attending this webinar this evening. Raising the Bar Home Edition is a series of six speakers over six weeks, and today's speaker was the fourth. We've got two that remain. Next up in the series is speaker Justin O'Sullivan with the topic, The Untapped Potential of DNA to Personalise Your Healthcare and Extend Your Life. Thank you again for joining us this evening, and we hope to see you again soon. <laughs>